You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos, and you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature podcast. This week, Father Paul highlights the function of the heavens' priority within the purview of the author, reminding us that the pairing of the heavens and the earth signifies an encompassing reality, a totality. I am happy to introduce Father Paul on the Bible as Literature podcast, Tarazi Tuesdays. Still, although the heavens are not the actual domain of the human beings, they are an integral part of the human domain, as is evident in that they are mentioned no less than five times in conjunction with the second, third, fourth, and fifth days of creation in verses 8, 9, 14, 15, 17, 20. In 20, it is in conjunction with the birds, the fowl, okay, of the heavens, Shamaim. And independently of the earth. So here again, it's very important to realize that the singling out of the earth in chapter 2 is intentional by the author. And that's why I expanded on Tohu and Bohu. Okay, it's no joke. But it doesn't mean that the heavens are no more there. Because afterwards, they are mentioned so many times in Genesis 1. And independently of the earth. So the totality of heaven and earth, it doesn't mean that they are like this as a solid together. They are a corresponding pair, as we shall see from the text, not because you know nowadays that the rain comes. No, you have to follow the text, what the text is doing with its heavens and its earth. Actually, the third occurrence of the earth after verses 1 and 2 is found in verse 10, that is, after the reference to the heavens twice in verses 8 and 9. Okay? In this conjunction, for those who are following the English, watch out in verse 8, you have the singular heaven, the only singular, which is treacherous because... In the Hebrew, we have the same word, heavens. This is just a note for those who are reading English, that they do not make a big deal of it. Okay, it's the same word. So we have heavens, 8, 9, and then in verse 10, we have the earth, after 1 and 2. It is as though the earth is mentioned in 2, left aside concentration on the heavens and we shall have to deal with this. First, the importance of the couple heavens and earth is reflected in that one, 
it appears at the outset of scripture in Genesis 1.1 and 2, it brackets the first creation narrative, Genesis 1.1 through 2.4 at the conclusion of which it occurs no less than three times. Let's hear it. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work which he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. And God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it because on it God rested from all his work which he had done in creation. These are the generations, Toledot, of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And I shall speak about this switch of putting the earth before it. But you hear it three times in the concluding remarks of this first section, namely chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. You hear it once in verse 1 and twice in verse 4. So clearly, the author is giving importance to this pair. As a note here, I would like to draw your attention to the author's ingenuity. In 2.4, the first mention has heavens and earth, just as in 1.1 and 2.1. However, this order is reversed at the end of the same verse, chapter 2, verse 4, into earth and heavens, introducing, starting at this point, the author's zeroing in on the specifically human domain, the earth. Notice, beginning with that, the heavens disappear practically. So even that switch to give to your ear the priority of earth and heavens, which is unusual, usually you say, is intentional and thus functional. Heavens will recede out of the scriptural horizon until 7.11. In between Genesis 2.4 and 7.11, the earth has unequivocally the lion's share 21 times on its own. It's like it's hammered in your ear. The value of the couple heavens and earth lies in that it expresses totality. See my comments on parallel as well as opposing literary couples reflecting an encompassing reality. Male, female, men and women, old and young, uh, black and white, uh, green and dry, you know. I mean, it's, it's classical. It is Elohim and only he, that bara, that, that is, renders everything in the human's world functional. So going back to Bereshit bara, Elohim, et hashamayim, et har, it's very important. Because, as we shall see already in chapter 1, the heavens will be talked about so many times before resuming the dealing with the earth, they are functional. With the waters above the firmament, the Lord before, and then the light. And so. 
I shall delve momentarily in more detail into this matter. Secondly, the priority of heavens in 1-1, which priority is reversed in 2-4, as I mentioned, is literarily functional, with the exception of verse 2 of Genesis 1, which is a parenthetical statement parallel to verse 1. In the verses describing God's action or activity, so to speak, starting with verse 3, heavens are referred to twice in verses 8 and 9, as I said, before the mention of earth in verse 10. Actually, God makes Asa, verse 8, and names the heavens in verse 9. Two actions. Hmm? He makes and then names them functionally before prompting the earth to appear as dry land in verse 10 and naming it earth in verse 11. So what I'm trying to say is that this priority established in verse 1 is not a sentimental or philosophical or theological priority. No, it is a functional priority. Already the author is telling you indirectly, I'll be dealing with the heavens first and then the earth. Now the earth is obviously important, starting with 2.5, I'm going to stretch only the matter of the earth until 7, but remember that the heavens have their priority, and we shall see why. It's not that, oh yeah, it's because it's the domain of God and the angels and the souls of our reposed ones until they are resurrected. No. It is functional within the purview of the author. And I showed that to you. Let me repeat it. You have both in verse 1, the earth by itself in verse 2, but beginning with God's activity, if I may call it this way in verse 3, the making and the naming of heavens appear in verses 8 and 9 before the appearance of the land in verse 10 and its naming in verse 11. So the view of the scriptural world as a totality has nothing to do with either science or philosophy. But it is a literary construct, concoction, out of the mind of the authors who have a specifically intentional perspective and program. In today's jargon, the author's narrative is not only their take on the so-called creation, but also itself their narrative is their own creation. Later, in the second creation narrative, they will point out to the hearer the geography of the human realm as being the Syro-Arabian wilderness encompassed within the boundaries of Arabia, Havilah, 2, 11, 12, and Egypt, Sudan, Kush, verse 13, in the south, and the rivers Tigris, verse 14, and Euphrates, verse 14 in the north that is their earth 
I mean, imagine even a student of mine said, Father Paul, you know, uh, before the Middle Ages, we didn't know that the Earth was a planet rolling around. <laughs> That's our trouble. The Earth of the authors is delineated in chapter 2. One more time, even if it has already appeared and named in chapter 2, still, for you, it's just basically a dry land. But where is it? You have to wait for chapter 2. It is within those boundaries that the scriptural Ha'adam was located by the scriptural Lord God himself, verse 16. You remember, people forget that. He first planted the garden, out of which you hear about the rivers and so on, and the Syro-Arabian desert. But he locates the man in the garden in verse 15. And you notice the importance because immediately you have commandment which is linked to a tree of the garden, to trees and tree of the garden. That, my dear friends, is what I mean by submitting to the literature. Not, oh, I can't stand people who when I spend uh, like two hours to explain something. Oh, oh, <laughs> what? what's the oh about? My dear friends, many of you cannot locate to me the Syro-Arabian desert on the map. Okay? But, do I need the map? No, I don't need the map because the author is telling me what the map is for this earth. That's why the entire story of Israel is between Egypt and Mesopotamia. And now and then you bring in Arabia through the Queen of Sheba and so on. And what is the reason? I'm going to tell you the reason on the podcast. Because God was planning the rise of the Quran to share this message with the Bedouin house. Really, Father Paul? Yes! Really. So keep quiet for the time being. <laughs> Even Rome is not in the purview of the Syrian. I mean, let's be real. As I mentioned earlier, let's be real. Meaning, realis according to the rest of Scripture. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.